The CDC picking vaccine favorites. The lead starts right now. Breaking just moments ago, a CDC panel unanimously voting to recommend Pfizer and Moderna over the J&J vaccine. Our Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to explain why. Plus, lifting the curtain on the behind-the-scenes efforts to overturn the election, new evidence revealed on how close Trump loyalists came to undermining your vote. Then, bravery above all else. A moment years in the making, three American heroes finally awarded the highest honor at the White House. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our health lead. Moments ago, CDC vaccine advisors unanimously voted to recommend that Americans should get the Moderna vaccine or the Pfizer vaccine because they say those two are safer than Johnson & Johnson's vaccine. This hour, President Biden is also set to meet with his COVID team to discuss the fast-spreading Omicron variant as cases are surging across the United States and disruptions to everyday life are once again becoming a reality. In the past week, at least four colleges and universities in the northeastern United States have either shut down, shifted classes from in-person to virtual, or moved final exams online. Multiple Broadway shows have canceled performances, and the NFL, NBA, and NHL all have had to postpone games or sideline players. This comes as Dr. Anthony Fauci issues two serious warnings. One, the winter surge is here. And as CNN's Nick Watt reports, Fauci says it's only a matter of time until Omicron becomes the dominant variant in the U.S. Tina among the Broadway shows canceling performances once more after cases amongst the cast just two months after reopening. Princeton and NYU just joined Cornell and others moving what's left of the semester back online. A depressing dose of deja vu. Officials in Philly are warning, don't party with people outside your household over the holidays. It's hard and it feels impossible and it feels unfair. These gatherings when we get together with friends and family are when we infect each other with COVID. Pro sports teams demonstrating how the virus is spreading. Odell Beckham Jr. scored Monday night. Next morning, joined the long list of players and staff testing positive or quarantining after exposure. They're really a window into community spread. And kudos to the sports leagues because they are actually doing a fantastic job of surveillance testing. In the rest of the country, we're driving a car down a dark road uh, with the headlights off while looking in the rearview mirror. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations climbed around 40% this past month. Deaths, says the CDC, forecast to rise in the month ahead. The Delta variant still rampant, Omicron on the rise. Very soon, it's going to be the dominant variant. We've seen that in South Africa. We're seeing it in the UK. And I'm absolutely certain that's what we're going to be seeing here relatively soon. No need at this point for an Omicron-specific booster vaccine, says Dr. Fauci, but this variant is now the most complete escapee, say researchers in a new preprint study, although the vaccines are still highly effective at preventing severe disease or death. It is reassuring that these infections seem to be less severe, but that's really only true probably if you're a healthy person who's been immunized and ideally immunized with three shots. If we have enough of these infections, which is, looks like we're going to, our healthcare system has again the potential to be really overwhelmed. 
Now, those CDC advisors who just voted to say that the mRNA vaccines should be preferred over Johnson & Johnson, they spent hours going through studies that show that the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is perhaps less effective. And also, they discussed those rare blood clots associated with the J&J vaccine. Very rare, but slightly less rare than previously thought. Now, the J&J vaccine will still, they say, should still be available for people who either had an allergic reaction to an mRNA vaccine, who perhaps just can't get an mRNA vaccine, or who, despite knowing the risks, would just prefer to get Johnson & Johnson. So everything's still available, but they're saying mRNA is now preferred over the Johnson and Johnson. That's their recommendation. Jay. All right, Nick Watt, thanks so much. Uh, let's talk about this all with CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. So Sanjay, obviously, let's start with this news. CDC vaccine advisors just voting to recommend the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna vaccine over the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. What is this about? And what do the 16 million Americans who got the J&J vaccine need to know about this? Yeah, so first of all, if people have received it already, I, I don't think that this is some cause for concern. Uh, because uh, we know that the vaccine's been out there for some time. If they were going to have some of these side effects that uh, Nick was just talking about, uh, they typically happen pretty soon after people receive the shot within the first couple of weeks or so. So it's still protective vaccine. But what the, the advisors have said is two things. One is that uh, if you look at the mRNA vaccines, they are more effective than Johnson & Johnson. Number two is that there is a very small but higher risk of something that is uh, known as these blood clots uh, with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Let me just show you those numbers specifically here, um, give, give you an idea of just how rare this is. We looked at the cases uh, through the end of August, and there were a total of 54 of these, these rare blood clotting sort of conditions out of 14 million doses. And by, the, uh, by sort of the second week of December, nine deaths out of 17 million. Still rare, but this is, I think, what really drove their decision. Uh, there's 17 million out of some 200 million shots that have been given. 17 million have been Johnson & Johnson. So um, this is a small percentage overall. But I think what they're saying basically is now going forward, they recommend the mRNA vaccines. Let's put that graphic up again, uh, if, we, if I could, Sanjay. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So you're saying that nine people who got the J&J &J vaccine died of that rare clotting condition. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Uh, you know, so it's it's that that's a concern. Obviously, it's less than one in a million, but it is something that I think, uh, you know, they've been discussing for some time. They first noticed concerns about this, these clots, even during the trials. Um, and now you're seeing it, obviously, in larger numbers overall, absolute numbers, but still rare. We can break it down even further if you want, Jake, and look at um, men, women, look at age groups. This appears to be primarily something that affects women, usually between the ages of 30 and 50 or so. Um, but, you know, that's, you know, this is the sort of, you know, it's worth pointing out, Jake, that this is the sort of level of detail that these investigators can find. Um, you know, nine out of 17 million, that's something that pops up and they then act on it. In this case, saying, hey, look, we're no longer going to recommend this as strongly as we recommend the mRNA vaccines. Uh, it gives you an idea of, of how they look at these side effects and, and how specific they can get, in this case, with these blood clots. And the chart you just showed of cases where it's, it's uh, impacting women in their 30s uh, more than any other group, uh, that's just cases of this clotting condition. That's not deaths from it. Am I right? Correct. Do we that's know right. so uh, that, that's of the nine people who died, do we have any idea what, if there was anything that they had in common? 
Uh, I, I, I don't know for certain. I think that they were also more likely to be women in that age range, but I don't have those numbers in front of me. But, you know, this is, this is something that may be related to, uh, you know, something that's going on hormonally with women at that age. It may be exacerbating the issues, could be related to birth control pills, smoking. They're not sure what the risk factors are exactly, but again, those are the numbers. All right. We just heard from Nick uh, about all the Broadway shows and professional sports games being canceled or postponed. The science shows that if you're if you're vaccinated and you test positive, it is highly likely your symptoms will be much milder than if you're unvaccinated and test positive. I mean, given this new reality, is it time for public health officials to update their guidance um, on how theaters and universities and pro sports leagues handle covid surges, given the fact that we know there's that that. A case of COVID is not the same thing as a hospitalization due to COVID. Is sure. not the same thing as a death due to COVID. I mean, we, we know a lot more about this now than we did a year ago when, when these kinds of um, delayed athletic events, et cetera, were, were starting to happen. Yeah, I mean, Jake, I think we're going to get to that point where we're going to have these discussions in terms of what we are willing to tolerate with regard to COVID. Uh, how many hospitalizations, how many deaths, uh, you know, that those conversations will happen. But right now, if you look at the map of the country, uh, you, there's two things to sort of point out. One is there's still a ton of viral transmission out there. So yes, uh, you know, uh, there may be milder cases overall with Omicron, but when you have that much viral spread, compounded by the fact that you have 90 million people who still have not been vaccinated, um, that's, that's, that's a prescription for some real problems. And I should point out, Jake, as well, when you, when you think about this idea that like, how much immunity exists in the community, it's a question that comes up with vaccines, with previous infections, how much immunity really exists. Well, sometimes the, the way to know that really is to see what is happening as the virus sort of spreads. Hospitalizations are going up. So while there may be immunity out there, it's not enough because people are still getting really sick. Um, you know, 1,300 people are still dying every day, uh, you know, right now on average. Uh, if, you, if you do the math, that's over 400,000 deaths a year if those numbers sort of kept up. So yes, I think at some point the policies will have to change and say, look, uh, is a, should a mild breakthrough case be treated uh, the same as a severe breakthrough case? We, I think those conversations will happen, but I don't think we're there yet. Is it fair to say you don't quarantine a workplace or a school when the flu is spreading, which it does pretty much every winter? Why do we need to quarantine when COVID is spreading? Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think, I think it's fair, but I think, you know, it's the same sort of thing. What are we willing to tolerate as a society? So let, let, let we pulled some flu numbers. We can put those up. You know, how many cases of flu, how many hospitalizations, how many deaths? Well, look, in a given year, um, Flu can also kill 60,000 people a year. And I feel like it's a, it's a difficult, uncomfortable conversation. But in a way, in the United States, we have sort of gotten to the point where we, we accept that. Uh, less than half of adults were getting a flu shot every year before this pandemic as well. So we sort of got to the point where we say, well, we'll accept that. Again, with COVID, we're nowhere near those numbers. It's well over 400,000, you know, 1,300 people dying a day. Um, what are we willing to tolerate? I think ultimately... Uh, it'll settle into a place where we say, okay, this is, this is, we're no longer going to quarantine. We're no longer going to do things because we can tolerate this. One thing that I think drives that more than anything else, Jake, is, is hospitalizations. You know, we have some 67,000 people in the hospital right now. And if you look at the COVID hospitalizations, the vast majority of them 
are unvaccinated. Right. You can you can look at the unvaccinated versus the vaccinated. So if the country was more like the green line than the red line, we'd probably be having the conversation that you're talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of breakthrough cases out there, but they're not getting sick. They're not overwhelming hospitals. We can start to maybe pull back on mitigation measures like quarantines, but not yet, Jake, for all the reasons I mentioned. All right, Sanjay, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, the Republican lawmaker now admitting he sent a plan for a coup, or forwarded it at least, to Donald Trump's chief of staff. That's the day before the insurrection. Plus, one ethics ethics expert claims it's like saying, let them eat cake, the outcry over a comment from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi about members of Congress and stocks. That's ahead. In our politics lead, Republican Congressman Jim Jordan of Ohio now admitting he was the lawmaker who sent a coup plan, who forwarded one at least, to then-Trump Chief of Staff Mark Meadows on the day before the insurrection. The text further revealing the intense pressure campaign put on Vice President Mike Pence by Republicans and Trump supporters to overturn the results of the election. CNN's Ryan Nobles joins us now live from Capitol Hill with more on this. And and Ryan, Jordan is trying to defend uh, that text that he forwarded. Uh, What is he saying? Well, his, his office is really downplaying uh, the motivation behind Jordan uh, forwarding that text message to Mark Meadows on the day before January 6th and uh, suggesting that perhaps he wasn't endorsing the content of that text message, but was instead just passing along uh, this legal theory from a former uh, government lawyer who had texted the information to him. And then his office saying that Jordan then just forwarded that text on to Mark Meadows, the then White House chief of staff. But to be clear, the contents of that text message are still pretty alarming. It was a legal theory that suggested that Vice President Mike Pence had the sole authority to determine whether or not votes were constitutionally cast. And he could cherry pick which ones he thought were and weren't, and then just toss out the rest, essentially interrupting the certification of the election results. Uh, It goes to show, Jake, the intense pressure campaign that was being put on the White House and specifically Pence to do just that, find a way for Pence to stand in the way of the certification process. We know, of course, that Pence uh, refused to do so, but the anger surrounding Pence's lack of cooperation with some of these people looking to to basically end run the democratic process is part of why we saw a riot here on Capitol Hill on January 6th. Yeah, and let's not forget that House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy tried to put Jim Jordan on the committee investigating January 6th. Talk about Fox uh, guarding the hen house. Uh, Ryan, uh, we knew that the committee was going to call conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and Trump ally and conspiracy theorist Roger Stone to testify. Are those depositions still going to happen? So they're still scheduled, Jake. Roger Stone is set to appear tomorrow in front of the committee. Uh, Alex Jones's deposition is scheduled for Saturday. At this point, the committee has not said that either will be postponed. And Roger Stone in particular is signaling that he will actually show up. Uh, he has said that he will plead the fifth when asked any questions. The committee's made it very clear that you can't just send them a letter and plead the fifth, that you actually have to come in and answer questions. And in a statement to CNN, his attorney making it seem that's exactly what Stone will do. We have no idea what Jones's plans are. He's scheduled to be here on Saturday. And even though there's been some defiance uh, with some of these witnesses that have been uh, close to uh, the former President Donald Trump, the committee's still getting cooperation. We're learning today, Jake, that they spoke for several hours with former Department of Homeland Security official Ken Cuccinelli. Uh, Cuccinelli said that he answered all of their questions, uh, did not talk about any specific conversations that he had with President Trump, but said that he was asked questions about the chief of staff, Mark Meadows. Cuccinelli, of course, was, uh, the New York Times reported at one point, 
was pressured by Rudy Giuliani to ask whether or not the DHS could seize voting machines. It's something they did not do, but it's clear the uh, uh, January 6th Select Committee casting a wide net as part of their investigation. All right, Ryan Nobles, thanks so much. What has Democrats, quote, frustrated and disappointed with their own party? Stay with us. We are back with our politics lead and tensions in the Democratic Party boiling over today with Senate Majority Whip Dick Durbin of Illinois telling CNN that his fellow Democrats are frustrated and disappointed about their failure to get a key part of the Biden economic agenda passed this year and pointing a finger of blame at the one senator he says is holding all of it up. Let's bring in CNN's Phil Mattingly at the White House. And Phil, give us a reality check. Is this a setback or the end of Build Back Better? And, And who exactly is Durbin talking about? Yeah, look, Senator Durbin is talking about Senator Manchin. I think everybody is talking about Senator Manchin at this point in time. But I haven't talked to any Democrat either on Capitol Hill or here at the White House who believes this is the end of things, that things are dead with this $1.75 trillion, really cornerstone of President Biden's domestic agenda. I think there, there is a recognition that this obviously won't get done this year. It hasn't been publicly announced yet but that it will take a number of weeks further and there will have to be probably some fairly significant changes to what the president and Democrats had envisioned for that final proposal. But even White House officials uh, who are careful in how they talk about Senator Manchin have made clear they believe he wants to get to the finish line. He wants to get something done. The real question is, can they construct something that satisfies both Senator Manchin and the rest of the Democratic caucus, Jake? And and Biden has been meeting privately with Manchin in person, on the phone, however they can meet to try to get this bill over the finish line. That's what the president wants. But now a source says the negotiations are very far apart. What happened? No, look, I think there's a range of issues. And Senator Manchin, to his credit, has been very public about his issues with this proposal for the better part of the last several months. And I think President Biden and Senator Manchin have spoken an awful lot over the course of the last 11 months. But in the last six or seven days, they've had multiple conversations by phone where it has become abundantly clear that Senator Manchin has significant issues with the proposal as it's laid out, particularly one issue specifically, and that is the child tax credit. In this proposal, it would extend that expanded child tax credit, which has driven down child poverty significantly since it was put into place by the American Rescue Plan. Senator Manchin thinks it's too large in terms of the fact that it's only extended for one year. He wants it extended either for a full 10 years or pulled out of the bill entirely. That is a non-starter for President Biden. It's a non-starter for Democrats. So how they reconcile that while keeping it within the $1.75 trillion top line is the biggest outstanding question right now. There are a series of issues they still need to resolve, but that's probably the biggest one right now that White House officials and congressional Democrats are working on, Jake. Phil Mattingly, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of New York. He's a deputy whip for the Congressional Progressive Caucus. Um, Let me start off by saying this appears to be what progressives had worried would happen if you went along to pass the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, that ultimately Manchin would not be there to pass Build Back Better. Do you resent how this is playing out? Do you feel played? Well, look, I think the American people resent how it's playing out, Jake. This is something that is so broadly popular uh, across the ideological spectrum when you do the polling. Uh, We are seeking to cut costs for the American people at a time when inflation has been rising. Uh, This is something that is going to continue to be to extend the middle class tax cut known as the child tax credit, which, uh, as Phil just mentioned, has been cutting child poverty in half over this past year. Uh, So this is common sense stuff. It's obviously fully paid for. Uh, And this is something that I'm hopeful the president will be able to fulfill his promise on 
when he promised progressives and the House Democratic Caucus writ large that he would secure the 50 Democratic Senate votes required to get this over the hurdle that is the United States Senate. So CNN's Manu Raju just got with uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, asked him about the criticism that he is demanding changes at the last minute. Manchin's response is, quote, everybody has demanded changes in the last few weeks. Is that true? No, it's not true. Uh, The fact is 90 percent of this bill was pre-conferenced. And pre-conferenced these days means Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema signed off on it. Uh, Now, I understand that the senator has consistently raised objections about pay family leave. That's unfortunate because we are simply trying to catch up to the rest of the developed world. Uh, But as of late, he's been raising objections that he only recently began to raise after signing off on this as part of that 90 percent that was pre-conferenced. So you see someone continuing to move the goalposts. Uh, And I'm so hopeful and optimistic uh, that we can get this done this month. And we also need to do voting rights. President Biden has been privately negotiating with Manchin for for months. It it sounds like to a degree you blame President Biden uh, for this not getting over the hump, given the fact that he he gave you his word as a Biden that he would get the 50 votes and he doesn't seem to be able to do it. Well, look, I think the president is able to do it. Uh, I just hope that he gets it done this month because the American people are hurting. Uh, folks are going to stop seeing those monthly expanded child tax credit checks stop uh, next month uh, if we don't do something about it right now. I don't think any of us want to be known as the folks who uh, doubled poverty right after we uh, cut child poverty. Uh, and of course, now Senator Manchin is saying that he supports the child, the child tax credit, but is only going to vote for it if it's over 10 years instead of one year. Um, I would love to increase the size of this package if that is his proposition. The holdup right now appears to be the child tax credit, as you know. Um, Manchin says he does support it, it, just not how it's being written in the bill. Is there any thought to removing the child tax credit from Build Back Better and, and passing it as a standalone bill and then continuing to work on Build Back Better, given the fact that Manchin says he would support that? I don't think there's any thought uh, that that is going to happen. And it's also something that doesn't need to happen. Again, this this was pre-conferenced. And so I'm hopeful that the president of the United States can fulfill the promise that he made uh, and that the leadership in the Senate will get this over the finish line as well. I mean, House Democrats have been doing the lion's share of the work of building an economy that works for everybody. But my goodness, will we like to see some help from the White House and from the United States Senate? How do you respond to the argument, and some of it comes from Democratic uh, uh, economists, that there has been so much money uh, infused into the economy uh, this year that that is why there is inflation, at least partly, uh, and that is why I'm sure when you go home, uh, your constituents talk about how expensive everything is at the grocery store and at the gas station. Um, Some people, including people like Larry Summers, a former uh, Democratic uh, White House economic advisor say that's because so much money has gone from the Biden administration and the, and the progressive co- Congress into the economy. Uh, the fact is, it is well established and, and leading economists understand this, uh, that as demand for goods increased, we saw uh, a supply either stagnate in some instances or, or decrease at the same time. And so that's why you see these prices increase. Uh, economists also say that the best way to deal with the crisis of inflation that we're facing right now, and I do feel uh, for struggling Americans who are experiencing this, um, is to make sure that we cut costs, right? So 
uh, putting money in the pockets of Americans through extending this expanded child tax credit, uh, making sure that the costs of health care and housing go down, which is what the Build Back Better Act will do. We're talking about capping insulin at $35 a month. Uh, that is an extraordinary achievement, among other things, in this incredible bill, like making child care affordable for literally every family in America. That is how we are going to overcome this temporary crisis of inflation. And that is what I want Senator Manchin to understand. Democrats in the Senate, as you noted, are, are considering switching focus and making one more push uh, on voting rights legislation. That doesn't have the votes either, it seems. Uh, we're about to enter a midterm year. Do you think that Democrats' failure to pass what you've promised from police reform to voting rights to build back better, do you think that that will be a reason uh, if you lose your majorities in the House and Senate? Well, there is nothing as important as saving our democracy, which faces its greatest test since Jim Crow. We see that in the voter suppression that has been enacted in so many states, particularly, but not exclusively in the South. Uh, And so we've got to pass the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and we've got to pass the Freedom to Vote Act. Uh, I'm proud to have co-authored provisions of both of those bills. Uh, But time is running out, and the people who incited the violent insurrection at the Capitol are gerrymandering their way back into power. And my goodness, I think most Americans shudder to think of what will happen if people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan are running the show. Democratic Congressman Mondaire Jones of, of New York, if I don't see you, Merry Christmas. Thanks for joining us today. Happy holidays. It's the defense's turn in the trial. In our national lead, the defense of Jeffrey Epstein's former associate, Ghislaine Maxwell, started today. But in a potential blow to the socialite strategy, three of the potential defense witnesses will not be allowed to testify anonymously. Maxwell faces a number of federal charges, including sex trafficking. CNN's Kara Scannell is live for us outside the courthouse. Kara, what did we learn today about the defense's strategy? This was the first day they tried to call witnesses. Yeah, Jake, that's right. Today is the first day that the defense is putting on their case, and their strategy is to attack the credibility of these four accusers, both at looking at their financial motives as well as their memory. They called four witnesses today. The most important for them, a UC Irvine professor who is a memory expert. Now, she testified that even false memories can be vivid, that emotion is no guarantee that a memory is authentic. And she said that even traumatic events, can't, your memory of those events can be influenced by external factors like movies, uh, and it can cause them to be exaggerated and distorted. Now, on cross-examination, the prosecutors tried to point to this defendant, uh, excuse me, the witness uh, testifying in multiple criminal trials. They held up a book that she had written that was called Witness for the Defense, and they asked her, has she ever written a book called Impartial Witness? And now, she did agree, the witness did agree on uh, cross-examination that witnesses and, and uh, victims tend to remember traumatic events. They remember them at their core. Uh, that was the, the most important witness for the defense today. They also called one of Maxwell's former assistants who'd said that she never saw anything inappropriate in the six years that she worked for her. Jake? Who else do we expect to hear from? Uh, do we know if Maxwell herself is expected to testify? No word from the defense on whether Maxwell will take the stand. She does intend to call several um, character witnesses, and those are the ones that you mentioned before, where the judge said that she will not let them 
testify using pseudonyms. That's something that the defense had wanted because they said that some of these witnesses would not want the publicity that would be associated with testifying for Maxwell. Jake? All right, Kara Scannell, thanks so much. Let's take a closer look now at this case uh, with Renato Mariotti. He was a federal prosecutor for nearly a decade, uh, specializing in white-collar crime. So, Renato, the defense spent a lot of today trying to undermine the testimony of Jeffrey Epstein's alleged victims. Could that be effective? Well, it, it can be effective. It's often what the defense does when there's a, uh, a case of identification where that is what it comes down to. And I've had those cases. Uh, even It can be in the case of violent crimes as well, uh, you know, uh, more traditional violent crimes uh, where, uh, where, you know, a bank robbery or something, there can be uh, identification experts. It's often a hot, a hot subject of debate. It's it's really what they have here. Realistically, if the victims and their testimonies are correct, uh, Miss Maxwell is certainly guilty. I'd, so they have to do that. But it really could backfire because I think everyone in the jury is going to be sympathetic to those victims as well. As Karis Cannell reported, the jury also heard from a former assistant of Ghislaine Maxwell who said she never saw anything inappropriate. Um, is that potentially a strong defense for her? I don't think so. Uh, th- those those sorts of folks come out of the woodwork all the time uh, in white collar cases, all sorts of cases where oh, I didn't see anything that was going uh, g- that was uh, uh, potentially criminal. And what ends up happening, the cross examination by the government is, well, uh, w- you know, did you know about this? Did you know about that? They'll show them pieces of evidence. And uh, inevitably, the uh, person uh, engaged in, let's say, child exploitation or some other crime did not, of course, let uh, that person know about all sorts of details that are are impossible to dispute, uh, and it just shows that that you know the argument from the government's going to be that this shows that Miss Maxwell knew what she was doing was wrong, and that's why she hit it. The jury just finished listening to these horrific accounts uh, of abuse from victims of Jeffrey Epstein. If you were in the position of having to defend Ghislaine Maxwell, who allegedly helped Jeffrey Epstein in these horrific crimes, what would your strategy be? Wow, that's a tough one. I think certainly they have to blame Epstein. They have to make the jury blame him, portray her as somebody who's duped by Epstein. And I think they have to portray her almost as an unwitting accomplice. Uh, the problem with that is there are victims who testify that she participated in the abuse of those underage victims. So that's why they have to go after those those uh, those victims and their credibility, which is very difficult to do in a way that isn't going to make the jury hate you. Uh, and why I imagine that there's there certainly was at some point some plea negotiations that were occurring here. Are you surprised that I mean, Jeffrey Epstein allegedly did this with a lot of very wealthy, powerful men. Are you surprised that we don't know who they are yet? I think the prosecution is probably trying to remove that element from this case. They want to make it about this particular defendant and what she did, rather than focusing on details that are going to distract the jury from that evidence and potentially, you know, cause the jury, you could imagine a juror really liking one of those famous or wealthy or important people and choosing to disbelieve the evidence. So I think the prosecution is doing the right thing by keeping this focus on Maxwell. You know, you always have to remember when you're a prosecutor, focus on the person who is the defendant in this case, as opposed to all of the other evidence surrounding it. That makes sense. But if Jeffrey Epstein was a sexual trafficker of underage girls, which he was, um, he did this for people. Do you think that the prosecution is going to bring cases forward uh, maybe even 
maybe even get Ghislaine Maxwell to, to flip or something, so that some of these abusers, in addition to Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, allegedly, uh, are, are punished. I think you're on the right track, Jake, when you said flipper. I think they really want Maxwell to flip. It would take the testimony of someone like Maxwell, most likely for that to happen, because thus far we haven't seen those charges. And I would expect if they had sufficient evidence without Maxwell's testimony that some of those charges would have already been brought. All right, Renato Mariotti, thank you so much. Good to see you. Coming up, bravery, devotion, now a Medal of Honor. Actually, three. Hear the stories of the heroes given the spotlight at the White House. That's next. In our national lead today, President Biden presented the Congressional Medal of Honor, the most prestigious decoration in the U.S. military, to three American heroes. Two were presented posthumously. The third honoree was joined by the families of the fallen soldiers. And as CNN's Oren Lieberman reports for us, these recognitions were long deserved. Good afternoon. Casanel Cash White always believed this day would come, even if she had to wait 16 years, when her little brother, Sergeant First Class Alwyn Cash, got the credit many felt he deserved. No soldier is going to be left behind on his watch. But she would trade today a million times to redo October 17th, 2005. June 2005, the last time I saw him, I told him, I need you to duck, don't be a hero, and come home. Cash had deployed to Iraq before, but this time his Bradley fighting vehicle hit a roadside bomb. The car was engulfed in flames, and soon, so was Cash. But he went back to the car, again and again, to pull out six of his men and an Iraqi interpreter. Does it ever get easier? When people say time heals heals all, they have not walked in my shoes. So no, it never gets easier. It gets a little... You don't cry as long, I should say, you know, so it doesn't get easy. Cash was awarded the Silver Star, but his men and his sister always felt he had earned the Medal of Honor. A warrior who literally walked through fire for his troops. A dream that came true. Perhaps more special than the award is the company in the White House on this day. Katie Solis is here for her husband. I used to ask him before every deployment, like, please don't be a hero, just... Go there, do your job, and come back. And he always told me that he couldn't make that kind of promise. Sergeant First Class Christopher Solis was on his second deployment to Afghanistan. On July 12, 2018, Solis led a team to clear out enemy forces when they came under heavy fire. Solis put himself in the line of fire to protect a medevac helicopter. And I think for him to like step back and not deploy or to even get out of the army was in a way abandoning his fellow soldiers. And for him, I don't think he could ever do that. Attention orders. It's a common theme in this group. Never abandon your fellow soldier because they would never abandon you. Master Sergeant Earl Plumley had been in firefights before during deployments around the world but never like this. Usually you're, you're not uh, hip deep in uh, uh, suicide bombers uh, you know, next to the chow hall. That, that's, uh, we typically do it differently. On August 28, 2013, suicide bombers attacked his base in Afghanistan wearing Afghan National Army uniforms. Plumley moved toward the attack, armed at first only with a pistol. He withdrew only to advance again and again to stop the attack. I, you know, 
read about Medal of Honor stories um, throughout my career. You are one of those stories now. Yeah, and I, and I still, I don't know, I haven't wrapped my head around it. It was an incredible opportunity to speak with Master Sergeant Earl Plumley and the families of the other two honorees. Perhaps one of the most impressive parts of Plumley's story, he came off deployment for the ceremony. He'll go back on deployment in just a few weeks. And because he's Special Forces, when I asked him, where are you deploying to, he said, I can't tell you that. Jake? Where do we get such men and women? Orrin Lieberman at the Pentagon, thank you so much. Coming up, everyone from the White House to one of the world's largest banks warning about what one person described as, quote, the most dangerous weapon in the world. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, new evidence that the American people are not all that worried about COVID, even with the many unknowns of the Omicron variant. Plus, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi rejecting the idea of banning lawmakers from trading stocks. We'll talk to an ethics expert who said Pelosi might as well have said, let them eat cake. And leading this hour, a shocking new revelation from the January 6th committee. Republican Congressman and Trump loyalist Jim Jordan was part of the pressure campaign to urge Vice President Pence to prevent Joe Biden's win from being certified. Jordan forwarded a text from a former Defense Department Inspector General to then Chief of Staff Mark Meadows outlying an unproven legal theory Pence could toss out electoral votes. This text means Jordan could be targeted by the very committee that Kevin McCarthy wanted him to join earlier this year. As CNN's Whitney Wilde reports for us now, the January 6th committee is charging forward with new interviews, even as Washington reels from all these new revelations. The House Select Committee investigating the insurrection is filling in the picture of how Donald Trump and his allies tried to overturn the 2020 election and pleas for him to try to stop the violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes? The committee focusing on the role of Republican members of Congress, like Representative Jim Jordan, who forwarded a text to White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows outlining a legal strategy for then-Vice President Mike Pence to stop the certification of the electoral votes. There was a far more malicious effort to find ways to um, corrupt our democracy, to overturn the the votes of the people. And that, to me, is so scary. Jordan is a well-known attack dog for the former president and someone minority leader Kevin McCarthy wanted to serve on the January 6th committee. But ultimately, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi blocked him. Here's why she denied his role on the committee back in July. I did not accept two of the five people were appointed. Uh, they have made statements and taken actions uh, that I think would impact the integrity of the commission of the committee. Behind the cameras, a long line of witnesses willing to talk. Today, CNN has confirmed officials with the Georgia Secretary of State's office met with the panel for hours. And as the House referred Meadows to the Justice Department, which is now deciding whether to charge him for refusing to testify, even about documents he's already turned over. Meadows maintains the committee isn't respecting Trump's executive privilege claim. This is designed to silence not just Mark Meadows, but every Trump supporter.
Well, Jake, the news uh, now is that we have learned that Trump ally Roger Stone is set to appear in front of the committee tomorrow. He intends to plead the Fifth Amendment. We also learned that today a former Department of Homeland Security official, Ken Cuccinelli, met with the committee for about four and a half hours, Jake. All right, Whitney Wild, thanks so much. Let's discuss. So, uh, Paul, Ohio Republican Jim Jordan forwarded this text from, sent from a former uh, Pentagon inspector general to then-Chief of Staff Mark Meadows the day before the insurrection. It reads in part... Vice President Pence, quote, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes as all. What do you make of this? I mean, it, it, it is fascinating that uh, Kevin McCarthy wanted Jim Jordan to be on the actual committee. Yeah, Congressman Jordan says there's more context, and we're entitled to that. And he's entitled to that. He should release it. He can give us that context. It's his text. My, sure. my guess is he has access to his own text. So he should tell us this. We should know everything. Uh, he, I, I, I draw a big distinction between Fox News personalities, who, by the way, were saying the right thing in private. They were saying, please make him stop the violence. And a congressman, Congressman Jordan swore an oath to the Constitution, right? Cable news talking heads don't swear an oath to the Constitution. We hope they're loyal to it. But Mr. Jordan took an oath to uphold the Constitution. And it may be, I really do want to see the context. He might have said, hey, get this, isn't this crazy? Right. So, uh, honestly, he's entitled to his full defense, but he is in charge of that defense. He can offer it to us right now. Give us the context, Congressman Jordan. Because uh, that's gets pretty, pretty close to undermining the constitutional order here. And, and, by the way, not only throwing in electoral votes, but the millions of votes of American citizens who cast them that determine those electoral votes. Yeah. Uh, well, what do you make of all this? Because Jordan is, is probably, uh, if the Republicans take the House back, uh, which is anticipated, He'll probably be the new chairman of the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, and if and who knows after that, I've heard speculation uh, that he could even be a speaker after McCarthy. I guess in some ways I'm less surprised because I'd be more surprised if this was a text coming from Senator Mitt Romney to Trump allies <laughs> than I am seeing it come from Jim Jordan. Again, we don't know the, the full context, but he's been vocally an ally of the president. And we know those closest to the president spent those days after the election trying to find any way they could so that their guy could still prevail, despite the fact that that's not what the American people voted for. So I'm less surprised by the idea of them sort of texting around, forwarding around lousy legal theories. Um, and more would be interested in knowing were any members of Congress involved in saying, hey, why don't you send these folks down toward the Capitol? That's what I'm more interested in learning. It is, you know, one more piece of evidence, though, another indicator that it wasn't just certain news anchors and uh, on Fox News or, uh, uh, you know, the CEO of MyPillow. But it was actually, you know, members of Congress also that were engaged in trying to overturn the results of the election, right? And, and, you know, my colleagues today even had a piece about these six members of Congress, all Republicans, engaged in pushing out conspiracy theories, um, trying to, you know, find any way they could at that point to try and, uh, and, and try to overturn the integrity of that election. Well, so, it, it yeah. shows you also Mark Meadows' central role, yes, uh, right. which is that who did they feel they had yeah, to the go through? For yeah, that. he was, exactly. Who do they have to go through? Right. Mark Meadows to get to the president of the United States. And Jim Jordan is the one who wanted to be on the committee. What would he do now if he were on the committee? Would he recuse himself? Testify to himself, I suppose. (laughs) So, but you know, it's interesting because the chief of staff is supposed to be the person that keeps all the crazy out of the president's way. Not not just with Donald Trump, but with any president. Uh, you, You know this. I mean, like, there's always a lot of stuff coming in. Some of it nutty, some of it extraneous, whatever. 
Uh, I know John Kelly, when the retired general, when right. he was chief of staff, that was one of his main jobs was getting Breitbart articles not printed out and put it on, put on the president's desk. It seems like Meadows, it was the exact opposite. Right, because he knew it would please the president. Right. So all they want to do is please the president, say, oh, here's another cockamamie legal theory we can throw out at you and you'll and you'll love it which is exactly what occurred, as we now know. And, and, luckily, what we do know also yeah. is that the vice president's team was thinking very different things and behaving right. in a very different manner. And yeah. I, I think credit right. still very much due to sure. Vice President Pence yes. that even in the face of prominent members of Congress sort of forwarding and lending credence to this theory, if that's in case what, in the case what happened here, right. that he still held firm. They were yelling, hang Mike Pence. I mean, I'm sure that there could have been violence against other members of Congress, sure. other Democrats, but the one they were targeting so vocally was Mike Pence. I wanted to ask you, uh, Kristen, there's this group of prominent conservatives, uh, including former lawmakers, sending a letter to Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, calling him to expel Congresswoman Liz Cheney and, Cad- uh, and Congressman Adam Kinzinger from the Republican caucus because of their roles on the committee. It reads in part, we ask that the GOP conference meet immediately to vote on stripping Representatives Cheney and Kinzinger from their membership on the, on the Republican conference. Is that something you think that he's likely to do? It's totally counterproductive. And I think McCarthy knows that with him, him being on the cusp of potentially being the next Speaker of the House, if Republicans prevail in the midterms, that the last thing you want to do is, is get fully distracted. I do think it's interesting that many of those same conservatives who are now calling for the expulsion of some members of Congress from their own caucus were many of those who a decade ago, in the Tea Party heydays, were the very ones fighting against the overreach of power from the leadership trying to tamp down the rebels within, within the base. So it's almost as though sort of this, this rebel group from a decade ago, poof, they, they're no longer worried about leadership sort of having too much of an iron fist. They would like to see that iron fist deployed in their, their own interests. Adam Kinzinger is probably not going to be in the next Congress, right? He said he's not running. Retiring, Liz yeah. Cheney is going to be facing a very difficult uh, primary. So there's a chance that the voters will be resolving this on their own. And it's all, I just want to bring it up because you were there when the Capitol was breached, when the violence was going on. Um, Why do you think we haven't heard directly from Mike Pence about his experience? Because we have heard from a number of people, Democrats and Republicans, journalists and others, about what a harrowing experience it was. It was obviously a fatal experience for at least five people that day. Um, Why do you think we haven't heard from Pence? It's a great question. I mean, look, we have seen thus far when you look at Republicans, especially in the House, and how they have tried to uh, separate the party from January 6th, they see this as a political liability, the committee, the investigation, and what have you. And, you know, when you talk to certain folks, there is still a thought there that Mike Pence's political future is not over yet, that he could have aspirations once again to run again. So is there is there baggage around talking about January 6th? But once again, that then goes to prioritizing or looking at this as a political liability rather than a necessity to have accountability. And what's he supposed to say? I was mm-hmm. frightened. I was scared. I was really pissed off. The president did not call me right. and ask how I was doing. Sure. Right. Well, yes, <laughs> yes, you might do that. But he wants to be president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And he is so worried about that Trump base and about the former president, who said, by the way, the other day, the Pence was mortally wounded. Right. Remember yeah. that? Mm-hmm. Well, he said as he stuck the knife in his back. He said that about a guy who was receiving death threats. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Poor choice words. I, I, but the, the re, Trump has warped the reality in his party. Not the reality. He's fed this big lie so that at least Pence has stayed true to the Constitution in his point. But there's reporting that Kevin McCarthy during the riot was calling Trump and trying to yep. get him to stand this down. So when, when uh, they tried to create an independent commission instead of a congressional committee, 35 Republicans voted yes. Only 35, but still, that's something. 
You know how many voted for the select committee, which is, I think, less desirable? Two. Right. Kinziger and Cheney, the two who are on it. So the, 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 the thing has moved so far toward the denial of 1-6 as a riot. Yeah, well, not just that, the denial of facts having to do with all sorts of things. Um, so there was a Republican gubernatorial debate uh, in Minnesota. Uh, Hugh Hewitt was the moderator, and his first question uh, was basically, was Joe Biden, I mean, it, it could have been, you know, is the moon made of green, green cheese or something like that, but, but, I mean, just like some sort of fact or not. He, it was a question about whether or not Biden was constitutionally elected, which, of course, he was, uh, so this isn't really a matter for debate, but here are some of the responses. I can't know what I don't know. And I think that we have to take that attitude towards 2020. I do believe there was voter fraud at a massive scale across this country. Uh, can I pinpoint the evidence down at everything? No, absolutely not. I don't think the election was fair, uh, but I do think we, we have the results that we have in the Electoral College is the way that we determine the election. I mean, this is, you know, is the earth round? You know, is water wet? But these are the <laughs> topics now for for uh, Republican gubernatorial debates. And by the way, no, nobody said yes, he was. Yes, he was, and we need Not to move one. past this. Trump's very influential in the party, and you continue to see evidence of that in things like this, in a variety of primaries that are happening around the country. You're going to have redistricting happen. There are going to be new districts that are even redder in some places, where suddenly there are going to be some very interesting primary contests happening. I think the thing Republicans have to remember is that the midterm will go best for them if it is not about Trump. And it doesn't have to be about Donald Trump unless they make it easy for Democrats to make it about Trump. In Virginia, Glenn Youngkin did not make it easy for Terry McAuliffe to make it a race about Trump. Republicans have that power in their hands to focus on issues like inflation, focus on other things that matter more to voters. But there could be some primary contests where Things like this make it easier to make Trump an issue. Yeah. Thanks, one and all. Appreciate it. An outcry from critics after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says lawmakers should be able to trade stocks while in office. Our next guest calls that the opposite of ethics. Plus, tractor trailers flipped over like toys. Hundreds of flights canceled because of 100 mile per hour wind gusts ahead. The rare and record breaking weather paralyzing part of the United States. Stay with us. We're back with a conflict of interest watch. Ethics experts sounding the alarm today after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she would not support a ban on members of Congress and their spouses from trading stocks while in office. Why would that be a problem, you might ask? Well, because lawmakers are privy to all sorts of private briefings and secret intelligence that the public is not, containing information that could decidedly affect the price of stocks once that information is learned. Let's go live to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Manu, this was all spurred by a report finding that some members of Congress are actually breaking the rules that were put in place to prevent such insider trading. Yeah, that's the 2012 Stock Act that was actually aimed at stopping members of Congress from learning about things privately and then making those decisions to help them financially. But this investigation by Business Insider found that 49 members of Congress and 182 senior level congressional staffers have violated that law. Now, that came amid questions about what is being done, the, the fact that these laws have been actually violated. But if this investigation showed what is well known on Capitol The House Ethics Committee, Senate Ethics Committee have not done a whole lot to crack down on these violations. There are inconsistent standards going forward and trying to deal with some of these violations. So the question was posed to Pelosi yesterday at her press conference. Why not ban members of Congress, their spouses, from trading stock altogether? And she pushed back. It's the 
people aren't reporting they should be. Because this is a free market and people, we are a free market economy, they should be able to participate in that. Now, the Speaker's office argues that sunlight is the best disinfectant. In other words, there should be more reporting so people can see exactly what these transactions entail. And, Jake, this has also become an issue in a number of key campaigns. Recall the Georgia Senate race in which David Perdue, the Georgia senator at the time, traded stock, got criticism over what appeared to be some insider trading, which he denied during the early months of the pandemic. But this investigation, too, Jake, also found that 75 lawmakers held stocks and vaccines of Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, and Pfizer in the early months of the pandemic. Mm. Manu Raja on Capitol Hill, thanks so much. Let's discuss this with Walter Schaub, the former director of the Office of Government Ethics under both Presidents Obama and Trump. Walter, you are comparing Pelosi's remarks to the infamous Marie Antoinette let them eat cake moment. Why? Sure. I mean, Nancy Pelosi says it's a free market. In reality, It's not exactly a free market when she has inside access to information from government experts that isn't public, that can affect and influence their trading activity that the public doesn't have access to. It's not exactly free when we're locked outside of the kind of information that members of Congress get all the time. So the Stock Act uh, that Manu mentioned was signed by President Obama in 2012 in an effort to prevent Insider trading, but according to this Business Insider report uh, that we're alluding to, uh, dozens of lawmakers and dozens of senior staffers are just not abiding by it. So why is there not an accountability system in place to make sure that these laws are enforced and they do, in fact, abide by their requirements? Yeah, well, it's good to be the king. And that's exactly the message Congress is sending because they passed this law and left themselves in charge of enforcing it. And they simply don't. Uh, You don't see anything like this in the executive branch, where when I was there and continuing after I left, they enforce this with penalties when you're late. You know, the, the project on government oversight where I work has been working with members of Congress from both sides of the aisle in both chambers to try to make this uh, practice illegal for two reasons. It's not just insider trading, but also conflicts of interest, and both are a very serious threat. You have, for instance, Joe Manchin wielding inordinate power over the president's initiatives that would affect the environment while he's got massive coal interests. We also had a number of members of Congress during the pandemic uh, trading in stocks that were affected by the pandemic that they knew about before the rest of us did. So mere disclosure isn't going to solve that. In fact, even if you did have people complying with the law, we'd have no way to know what kind of insider briefings they got. So we would have no way to evaluate whether they were committing insider trading. And I would just add that the mere appearance that they are engaging in insider trading is just as bad as if they actually are, because we have a crisis of confidence in government right now, and the public can't just take their word for it. So you you raise an interesting uh, point when it comes to Senator Joe Manchin, but let me push back and play devil's advocate here. Yes, he has uh, interests uh, in fossil fuel industry. He also represents West Virginia. So even if he didn't have those interests, his constituents... Citizens of West Virginia, many of them would want him to take those positions regardless of what financial holdings he has. Is that not a point? 
Well, and along those same lines, they argued that's why members of Congress can't recuse, refrain from participating in votes, because it would strip their constituents of a voice. The problem is, though, the constituents never have any way to know whether he's acting in their interests or his own financial interests. And even if there's a Venn diagram where they overlap somewhat, they don't overlap perfectly, and they have no way of knowing the simplest, cleanest way would be to force divestiture of these types of assets, and then you wouldn't be left wondering. You also have to remember that to the extent that Nancy Pelosi says, oh, it's a free market, why should they be deprived of the chance to participate in the market? Well, nobody kidnapped them and dragged them to Washington and said, you must be in Congress and pointed a gun at their head. Uh, they are there by choice. They asked us to give them great power over our lives. Yeah. They owe us great transparency and a lack of conflicts of interest. So you've gotten some blowback on Twitter, per usual, from uh, a lot of progressives and Democrats who say, Walter, Trump is trying to undo our democracy. Why are you worried about this? This seems so petty compared to that. What do you say to them? You know, two things can be true. We can be facing direct threats of authoritarianism and we can have corruption in Congress. They're not mutually exclusive and they are both important. Look how concerned so many people, including I, uh, are about uh, uh, voter suppression. But you want to talk about voter suppression. Look at the sheer number of Americans who don't vote. Some of them don't vote because we put obstacles in their way, but others don't vote because they've given up. So it's all connected because when Congress uh, sends a message that ethics don't matter and leave concerns of corruption out there, how are you going to convince these people who aren't voting that they should participate and that it matters who's in Congress when you've got members of Congress just willy-nilly trading stocks and creating the appearance of insider trading and actual conflicts of interest? And it's yeah. not like it's me versus all of Congress. A number of people on both sides of the aisle uh, have weighed in. You've got, even in the Democratic Party, led by Nancy Pelosi, you've got Spanberger near the center and AOC near the left, uh, both pushing for members of Congress to stop trading stocks. So this isn't a right, left, or center issue. This is a right yeah. and wrong issue. And it's objectively clear that Nancy Pelosi's wrong. Walter Schaub, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, it could impact the entire Internet. The new warnings about critical security flaws with hundreds of millions of devices at risk. In our tech lead, it is, quote, the most dangerous weapon in the world, unquote. No, I'm not talking about a nuclear bomb or even a bioweapon. It is cyber threats. That's according to former Defense Secretary Robert Gates. As a flurry of urgent warnings come from top agencies, including the White House, releasing a letter today to executives and business leaders pleading with them to stay vigilant when it came, comes to combating malicious cyber threats over the holiday. CNN's Alex Marquard uh, joins us now. Now, this comes on the heels of news of a major software vulnerability flagged by Microsoft and federal officials, including the Homeland Security Secretary today. What did he have to say? Well, he says, Jake, that he is extraordinarily concerned. And that echoes what we've heard from a whole range of officials and cybersecurity experts. The head of the main cyber agency, CISA, says that this is the most serious flaw um, that she's ever seen. Now, what is this flaw? It's in a software called Log4j, which the vast majority of our viewers will not have heard of. Uh, but it is used extensively across the internet by companies that everybody has heard of. Apple, Microsoft, IBM. 
this flaw was so found. So we're trying to say, so it's, is this in my phone? It, I, have, I, have an, I have an iPhone. Is it in my iPhone? It could potentially get to that point. Yeah. Uh, it's in the very popular game Minecraft, which so many people play. Um, and what's very scary about this is not just its prevalence, uh, but how easy it is to exploit. So it's not even um, it, basic hackers uh, who, can, who can use this. The sophisticated hackers are the ones who are going to be doing the most damage. It means they could get into your device. It means they could hurt your device, damage it. They could steal information. They could install malware. They could potentially carry out ransomware attacks. So this is why Secretary Mayorkas today said that he's extraordinarily concerned. Here's a little bit more of what he had to say. It's uppermost in our minds and, quite frankly, uppermost in our action plans. The, the challenge it presents is its prevalence because they uh, attacked um, a software that is omnipresent. And then the, there's a vulnerability that has been exposed and others can jump in uh, in the exploitation of that vulnerability. Mayorkas went on to say that the government is working very, very quickly to address this. Uh, we know from Microsoft and the cybersecurity firm Mandiant that this exploit is already being used by state-backed hackers from Iran, Turkey, China, North Korea. And experts believe that this could be with us for years to come. Facebook uh, just notified thousands of users that they were hacked. Who are these hackers? Well, a number of groups um, that uh, Meta, the parent company of Facebook, and Citizen Lab, which is the University of Toronto, called, called cyber mercenaries. So um, they notified 50,000 people that they had been targeted, and this is in more than 100 countries, uh, by seven different firms and organizations. These are essentially spies for hire that offer a whole range of uh, tech, of spying techniques. Um, there are a number of companies from Israel. One was called Black Cube, which was used infamously by Harvey, Harvey Weinstein. Weinstein yeah. um, and, and these groups often say that their tools are just used against criminals and terrorists. But what this report says is that they were used indiscriminately against rights activists and, and opponents of authoritarian regimes. And this uh, does echo uh, another uh, company that got into some trouble, NSO Group, another Israeli company that uh, the Biden administration has accused of, of, of uh, their technology targeting journalists and, and embassy workers. This is a growing, uh, very lucrative industry that, of course, is very dangerous as well. Well, very quickly, if you can, Alex, what are we supposed to do? Turn off our devices? Well, we have to, you know, listen to the experts and, and shore up our cybersecurity however we can, patch when we can, update when we can, and then hope that pressure from uh, governments like the Biden administration on these companies make it so that um, they're no longer allowed to operate. All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Coming up next, growing proof that many Americans are over COVID and what that might mean for you. Stay with us. And our health lead from closing colleges to canceling Broadway shows to postponing major league games, more COVID outbreaks involving the new Omicron variant are leading to a replay of scenes from 2020. But new polling suggests the American public itself is less worried about COVID and many seem simply over the restrictions. Let's bring in CNN's senior data reporter, Harry Enten. So Harry, let me start with the new variant Omicron. Dr. Fauci said today he's absolutely certain this will become the dominant strain in the United States relatively soon. Are Americans worried about Omicron? And, and as they hear this variant, is highly contagious and there are more cases involving it. I mean, if you look at the polling, what you see is when you ask folks, are they extremely or very concerned about the coronavirus? You do see that concern is up a little bit from where it was a month ago or even six months ago. But look at this. Compared to a year ago, it was 62 percent. Now 
It's just 42 percent. There are far fewer Americans who are extremely concerned about it. And indeed, what we really see is that Americans are just worn out by this entire thing. So if you ask essentially Americans, are you worn out by all the restrictions that have been basically put into place and the changes to your daily life? Look at that. 60 percent say yes. And what's so unbelievable about that is if you look at the partisan breakdown, we're so used to seeing Republicans being less concerned than Democrats here. Everyone is basically worn out by what's going on. Everyone I talked to, we're just like, oh, come on, man. It's been 20 months. We're just all so exhausted by all of this. So it was March 2020 when social distancing became a thing. Yes. An everyday term. I recall it. Then came the masks, then the lockdowns, other various restrictions. Fast forward almost two years. Are Americans still willing to make these changes to their everyday lives? Well, some of them are. I know some folks who literally will just stay locked down perhaps for forever. But if you if you ask Americans, have you socially distanced in the last week, what you see is less than a majority say that they are. In fact, in the latest polling, it's just 45 percent. And look at that. It's the same basically as it was a month ago. It was the same as it basically was six months ago. And compare it to a year ago when it was 79 percent, 79 percent said they had social distance in the last week. Now it's just 45 percent. And if we sort of, you know, bring this out and look at masks, right, because I think masks have been something that has divided a lot of us. And you ask, OK. Given the Omicron variant that's out there, how likely are you very likely to essentially always wear a mask indoors? Look at that. Just 42 percent. Now, here's what's interesting about that. If you look at those who have received at least one covid dose, look at that. It's 47 percent. The unvaccinated folks, the most dangerous out of all of those are, in fact, the least likely to say that they are very likely to always wear a mask indoors. So the unvaccinated folks are unvaccinated and they're probably not wearing a mask. They're they're. Personally, they're the most responsible for spreading the virus around. And even as Omicron spreads, the data shows the vaccines can help prevent serious illness. It's very important for people, especially if you've gotten three shots, if you get boosted. At this stage of the pandemic, is that changing minds at all among the unvaccinated? Uh, not really. I mean, if you if you look at, you know, and you ask, OK, are you very likely or have you gotten a COVID-19 vaccine dose? Look at that. Compared to six months, uh, compared to three months ago, it's a little bit up 75 percent, 78, 78 to one month. And now it's 80 percent. But mostly unvaccinated are, in fact, not getting vaccinated. But look at if we look at boosters, right, because boosters could be the game changer in terms of the Omicron variant. If you see this, you see, look at that. Have gotten or are very likely to get. It's still at 51 percent now compared to a month ago. Yes, more folks have gotten it. But that has basically come from the people who said they were probably going to get it anyway. Harry Anson, thank you so much. Good thank to have you. And by the way, check out Harry's podcast. It's yes, podcast. Mar- margins of error. You can get margins it on of iTunes or wherever, basically. But it's very, it's very light. It's if, not like this. If you don't get enough Anson in your life. You know what? You can never get enough Anson in your life. That's what I say. Harry, thanks so much. Thank Let's you. bring in Dr. Megan Randy. She's a professor of emergency medicine at Brown University. Um, so, Dr. Randy, you saw the numbers from Harry. Even in light of Omicron, we do not see a strong rise in the number of Americans willing to wear a mask more, or to get a booster shot, or even to get vaccinated so might it be time to, to rethink uh, reinstating protective measures uh, in the name of saving those tens of millions of unvaccinated Americans who refuse to get the shot? So we can only do so much for those who won't help themselves. And the reality is, as Harry just presented, the folks who have not yet shown up to get a shot are also the ones who are least likely to follow the public health regulations. For those of us who are fully vaccinated, particularly those of us who have gotten boosted, this is not 2020. And we are right to not be as worried about our own personal health, although we do, of course, have to be worried about 
our ability to go to school or to work or about the possibility of long COVID. But if we've gotten vaccinated and boosted, we're unlikely to end up in the hospital, in the ICU or, God forbid, dead. Now, the one piece of hope, Jake, is that I am hearing personal stories of folks who had held out against the vaccine who are now changing their mind, whether in the face of Omicron or in the face of impending January mandates. So you're a doctor. You took the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. At this point, if the unvaccinated do not want to get the shot, then what? Does, Does this just prolong the pandemic forever? Tough to know. I mean, there's a possibility that they'll get infected, they'll develop immunity. We're seeing that prior infection with Delta or Alpha variant is not protecting people from Omicron, but it's possible that they'll develop immunity that will protect them from severe future variants. In the meantime, in the hospital, I'm going to keep taking care of everyone who comes in, regardless of whether they're vaccinated or not. That is my oath. It's what I do for everybody. And folks will continue to fill my hospital beds if they've not gotten their shots. You're at Brown. What do you make of the decision by Cornell, which saw a huge spike in COVID cases after students came back to campus in Ithaca, New York, after after Thanksgiving break, to uh, basically shut down in-person learning? Uh, Is that something we're going to see more of? Is that even necessary if it's just cases and not hospitalizations and, and, and serious illness? I think that's a really important distinction to make. I am not someone who is going to play down cases because cases can lead to long COVID, but there is a disconnect with Delta and Omicron between cases and hospitalizations. I look at my home state of Rhode Island. Our cases are almost as high as they were at this time last year, but our hospitalizations are half of what they were this time last year. That's because of vaccines. And I will say my university has not shut down because everyone here is vaccinated but we will be requiring boosters and tests before folks come back. I think there's huge value to in-person contact, and we want to preserve that however we can. Vaccines, boosters, masks, ventilation all help keep us close together rather than on a Zoom screen. Our Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. Good to see you as always. It has been called white gold, but critics say the mining of this key element for electric cars is not actually helping the environment. We'll show you what we're talking about next. International lead, another rare day of unprecedented weather in the United States and right on the heels of those deadly tornadoes across the Midwest. In the Great Plains and Midwest, a one-day record for at least 55 reports of hurricane-force wind gusts. In Minnesota last night, the first tornado ever reported in December. In Boulder, Colorado, could you imagine low clouds like this rolling over the hills? Or how about this scene in Kansas? Take a look. That was on the I-70 in western Kansas as a dust storm blew in. Let's bring in CNN's Tom Sater. Tom, how unusual is this kind of incredibly intense weather for December? Uh, Jake, I've been a meteorologist for 30 years, worked in a lot of TV markets, a lot of states, and we saw things in the, Nash, uh, in the CNN Weather Center we've never seen before. And the list is long when it comes to the oddities. Let's start with the warmth. Remember when we had our tornado outbreak, Memphis on Friday was at 80 degrees. Of course, eight states, 50 tornadoes. Uh, We had another 21 yesterday, but nine states had those hurricane force winds. This is like a hurricane over land. Omaha, 74 degrees. Their average high is 38. 
They shattered the high, record high. Well, it used to be 61 degrees. But it's not just that. Two areas of concern. On the left, this was an extreme fire risk. Never before seen this time of year in areas of the southern plains. But where they typically have snow, they haven't had rain in 60 days. The fires were fanned by 100-mile-per-hour winds. Then our level four out of five in the upper Midwest, never before in Minnesota in any month of November, December, January, or February have they had that. Tornado watch for Minnesota was placed on top of snow cover. Never seen that before. Then their first tornado. The crazy dust moving all the way up toward northern Michigan. Uh, we had every county in Iowa with some sort of uh, warning, whether a tornado or not. You can see the severe weather threat. All right, Tom Sater, thanks so much. In our Earth Matters series, deep inside a Nevada volcano deposits of what some call white gold or the new oil. There, lithium is plentiful. And it's a vital part of flipping the switch towards more Earth-friendly battery-powered technology. CNN's Renee Marsh went there to check it out. She found lithium has both a positive and negative side. The temperature is frigid here in the northern desert of Nevada, and yet we find people camping in tents Braving these harsh conditions is an act of resistance against proposed mining for lithium in that extinct volcano. 13 degrees and both the sun and temperature is going down in the northern desert of Nevada. It gets pretty dark pretty fast around here. It does in the winter and the cold is pretty fierce too. This is where self-described radical environmentalist Max Wilbert is spending the night. What are you doing out here? Blowing up a mountain for coal mining is wrong. I think blowing up a mountain for lithium mining is just as wrong. In the Nevada desert, this site known as Thacker Pass could make the United States a player in the fast-growing market for lithium for electric vehicles. Lithium is a metal used to make batteries for electric vehicles and is critical to the clean energy transition. There's currently only one lithium-producing mine in the United States, located halfway between Reno and Las Vegas. The majority of the world's lithium is mined in Australia and South America. Protesters have rotated in and out of this encampment for the past 11 months. They say what will become the largest federally approved lithium mining project operating in the U.S. comes at an environmental cost. Producing one electric car releases something like nine tons of greenhouse gases on average. The whole issue of electric vehicles and lithium mining is tricking us into believing that we can have this modern industrial lifestyle that we all enjoy and also solve global warming. It's not going to solve any any climate change problem, but it's a major contribution. Lithium mining in the state of Nevada has pitted environmentalists against other environmentalists. Glenn Miller, a former professor of environmental science at the University of Nevada, Reno, supports the mine. He says it will cut carbon emissions from the transportation sector, a major source of greenhouse gases. Radical environmentalists are going to argue that the only way to solve the climate change problem is to drive a whole lot less. I mean, a whole lot less. And to to not uh, burn gasoline or coal. Well, that's not going to happen. He says not transitioning to electric vehicles is far more dangerous to humanity. The CEO for mining company Lithium Americas acknowledged uh, an ability here to mitigate and do things as sustainable as possible. Back in the desert, Wilbert is willing to risk it all to stop any mining on this site. You're willing to, if this project moves forward, throw your bodies in between mining machinery to prevent it. Sounds a bit extreme. Do you mean that? 
our laws haven't caught up with the reality of what's happening to our planet. And so people might have to break the law in order to change what's happening. The mining company Lithium Americas faces legal challenges from groups who want to block the project, but the company tells CNN they hope to break ground here by early next year. Jake? All right, Renee Marsh in Nevada, thank you so much. Perhaps only the boss could make half a billion dollars with one single move. Bruce Springsteen cashing in. That's next. But you know you won't be back, darling, if you're weary. Topping our national lead, justice, nearly 70 years in the making. An Alabama judge today finally expunged the juvenile criminal record of civil rights pioneer Claudette Colvin. Colvin was arrested in 1955 as a teenager for refusing to give up her bus seat to a white person in Montgomery, Alabama. Her case took place nine months prior to Rosa Parks. The judge ordered Colvin's records to be sealed, destroyed, and expunged and called her act of defiance courageous. Our pop culture lead, the glory days are here for the boss, and Bruce Springsteen could be cashing in on close to half a billion dollars. Billion with a B, the New Jersey native who has 20 Grammys under his belt, a podcast with former President Obama, and a one-man Broadway show is selling the rights to his music to Sony Music Entertainment, including hits such as Born to Run, Born in the USA, and Dancing in the Dark. The New York Times says the deal would be the largest transaction ever for one single artist's catalog. Congratulations, boss. Follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of The Lead, you can listen to The Lead wherever you get your podcasts. Our coverage continues right now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer. He's right next door in the Situation Room. Stay with us. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.